Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I want to bring in Tom Tucci. He is the head of U.S. Treasury trading for CIBC World Markets. They give us some perspective on what is happening in the bond market and its relationship to the value of the U.S. dollar. Tom, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Um, so maybe you could just provide a little backdrop for this current market and the performance of the U.S. dollar, because we're seeing a big sell-off in bonds today. I mean, looking at the 30-year, we're down more than a full point. Right. Well, last week, we were dominated by what would be risk-off and concerns surrounding several un- unknowns, ranging from the hurricane to government shutdowns to geopolitical risk coming out of North Korea. I think some of that has calmed down from now. From now, um, But all of it hasn't been resolved. Uh, we still don't know the full impact of what's going to happen from the, the hurricane. We know historically it's provided a bit of a dip in growth, but then a bounce back uh, in later quarters. Um, I think the thing that really will be driving the market going forward is really what's coming out of Washington, whether or not we get any kind of tax reform and whether or not they can really shore up the debt ceiling limit. We're under a temporary uh, order right now that's going to last us probably between January and February next year. And we need to clean up some of these things. Tom, you're the head of U.S. trading at CIBC. You are overseeing the actual day-to-day uh, volumes. I'd love to get your take on the feeling in the activity. Is this just sort of humdrum, slow-moving kinds of days where people just are sort of uh, basically uh, – doing basic uh, maintenance on their funds? Or are you getting investors from overseas that really have conviction on treasuries one way or another? No, I think uh, from the flow standpoint, overseas investors, uh, particularly out of Asia, are better sellers. They've been long for quite a period of time, and they've been better sellers up around these levels. I think overall what's happened is if you look at the dynamic of what happened to the market since November, um, you've reported on it several times. The market priced in something coming out of the election with certain expectations coming out of this administration. And they haven't been able to deliver on any of them for various reasons. And if you look at a chart, basically what we did last week is we retraced all of that sell-off, particularly in the long end of the market. And that's despite the Fed tightening a couple times. So um, to me, what's happened is people have been positioned for higher rates for quite a long period of time. Things have been moving against them from the inflationary front. In other words, inflation's been coming in below trend for six, seven months now, the Fed's identifying the fact that those are some structural change that they hadn't seen before. And you start to see a little bit of an adjustment as far as expectations in the long run for yields. In other words, they're not going to back up as significant as people had predicted earlier in the year. Right. Tom, what do you think the next big move is uh, with yields going higher or lower? Well, to be honest with you, I still think the reality is that until there's a, a structural change, and what I mean by that is whether the the central banks uh, out of Europe, out of the U.S., can really make a dent in reducing their balance sheets, I think it's going to be very difficult for yields to rise appreciably. Um, There's still a structural demand from the demographics globally of uh, an aging population and just an underlying demand for yield overall. You see these record numbers of corporate supply coming into the markets 
We're into uh, a new month now, and the, the calendar's been pretty heavy, and it's been met with very significant demand. So that yield demand is still there. Until we see something structurally change in the economy, which I think could come out of tax reform and some other things that come out of the government, um, and central bank policy shift, it's going to be very difficult for bond yields to rise significantly. How's Tom Tucci voting when it comes to raising interest rates? I, I don't think there's any need to raise interest rates. I think the Fed is focused completely on reducing their balance sheet. They want to start to get they, – they've already prepared the market for that. Um, I think that will be the thing that will come this month. I don't think they'll, they'll tighten again this year. I think the economic data will be fuzzy enough because of the hurricane-related um, activity. It'll, it'll sour the economic uh, numbers that are coming out going forward. And I don't think there's any need for them to be raising short-term interest rates in here. I think they're better off focused on reducing the balance sheet. Having said that, what happens to the U.S. dollar? It was weakening against all major uh, trading partners, the yen at 108.87, the euro 119, and so on. wondering if you could give us your outlook for the dollar and what does that mean for investor money? Well, I think in general, the only thing that will change for the dollar is if you start to see some other situations happen where the dollar doesn't become the dominant reserve currency. And what I mean by that is you start to see China and Russia, you know, looking at pricing oil in different currencies, not in the dollar. I mean, these are long-term things that would have to happen. I think overall the dollar's pretty oversold. I think we've had a pretty good run in some of these other currencies, and you'll start to see um, some movement back to a more neutral stance with the dollar firming up some. You know, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is if you do get a, a dollar that starts to strengthen again, how much does that disrupt current market positioning? And I was just looking today at the incredible record-breaking flows into uh, local currency emerging markets debt, which has basically uh, been a cloaked currency bet on, uh, on the weaker dollar. I mean, do you think that that could be a disruptive kind of event? Well, I think, you know, what, what you're identifying is people continually looking for almost like an alternative currency, right? You've seen these cryptocurrencies benefit substantially. Um, I still don't understand the fundamentals of that, but nonetheless, they've, uh, it, it's an alternative currency, I think, with what's happened with central banks and the manipulation that's taken place within um, governments overall. People are looking for what they would consider a safer store of their wealth. And I don't know the answer to that as far as the cryptocurrency is concerned. I don't have enough experience with that. But it's been since the crisis, you've seen that. You've seen money trying to find what it would consider a um, more secure currency. You saw what happened with the Swiss franc over time during the, uh, during the crisis, particularly in the European crisis. And that's what people are more concerned about. They're more interested in the stability of the value of their currency. You, you mentioned uh, uh, you know, this idea of looking for an alternative to the, to the U.S. dollar. Why are they looking for an alternative? I think it's you know, what, you've, what you're faced with as far as the outlook for the government, the outlook for budget deficits, um, those things that have driven flows and demand from foreign investors into the market. So if you have a little bit of a concern about what's going to happen going forward as far as deficits are concerned, um, we still haven't delivered on any of the infrastructure pro- uh, promises here. Uh, we have a debt ceiling issue still. Um, those kinds of things kind of detour people from having the confidence in investing in the underlying currency. So that, that's what I'm saying. There's so many moving parts when it comes to central bank policy and government issues, particularly here in the U.S., um, people continue to look for an alternative. Tom Tucci, thank you so much for joining us. Tom Tucci is head of U.S. Treasury Trading at CIBC World Markets in New York City.
Teva Pharmaceutical Industries appears to have ended its longer search for a chief executive officer today. It named H. Lundbeck's Kar Schultz is its new chief executive officer and here to tell us what this means for the path forward of this generics maker. I want to bring in Liz Krutoholm, uh, Krutohalo. Uh, she's specialty pharma and biotech analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence in London. And Yaakov Ben-Melech, he's a reporter in Bloomberg uh, in the Tel Aviv office. Uh, Liz, I want to start with you. Uh, was this an expected choice? And uh, does this uh, choice of Carr Schultz give you any sense of the path forward for the company? So this morning's news was definitely not expected. Lundbeck has been having a really great year. Schultz has been able to lead a turnaround there. So he was in a pretty secure place. So not an expected move for him. In terms of his role at Teva, I think it certainly is good from a Teva perspective, as evidenced by the shares today. But you can see that this period of uncertainty is at least behind the company, and he is bringing in specialty expertise, which will help the branded unit. But the generic unit is not really an area that he has a lot of expertise in. So that is a bit of a surprise. You know, uh, Kobe, I want to bring you in here because I want to, if you could explain to people how uh, urgent uh, the situation is at Teva Pharmaceuticals, and is there uh, going to be an even greater effort to split the company from its generic uh, uh, versus its uh, branded drug business? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly been urgent, and, and that was really, uh, as you can see in the stock today, what was depressing the, uh, the stock price. Uh, urgent in the sense that Teva has a huge, huge uh, debt problem. I think its debt is about almost twice the size of the value of the company, and that's really uh, tied the hands of, of what they can do strategically. So uh, they needed to get someone on board to to really steer the company, to really set forth a coherent strategy. You know, uh, Teva's been uh, – this is now the fourth CEO in five years, and with each CEO, it feels like almost that the, the strategy has been changing left and right. So, uh, so yeah, so investors are really rewarding Teva for, for uh, getting uh, Schultz. Uh, from what I understand, by the way, it's uh, pronounced Ka, like like a Boston accent when you say car. I've, I've uh, butchered absolutely uh, everything today, so thank you. I appreciate you uh, correcting <laughs> that. <laughs> I, I had to ask as well. The, the chairman, he, uh, he told me how to say it today. Um, but, uh, but, yes, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's well-received, and uh, there's still a lot of skepticism about uh, the kind of job that he can do. But uh, that's certainly a, good, a positive step forward for Kevin. You know, Liz, I'd love to get your sense. What is the most logical step forward? Is it to uh, continue to ramp up sales of assets in order to pay down some of that debt, which I believe is close to $30 billion? Uh, or is it to uh, sort of bolster the current generic offerings and make sure that pricing uh, is in line in order to uh, bring back revenue sufficient to grow into the capital structure? So it will be more of the former at this point. So the bigger concern, certainly near term, will be debt pay down. Just based on Teva's covenants, they're required to be at 4.25 times net debt to EBITDA by end of year, and they're currently at 4.56. And based on their free cash flow that we've seen so far this year and what we expect in the second half, the only way that they can meet that would be through asset sales. So they have mentioned that women's health is on the chopping block, as well as their European pain and oncology franchises. Those would pretty much just get them there to reach their covenants by year end. And again, they have to close by year end. So that's going to be quite difficult. Uh, and then looking forward, you have the risk to their leading product, 
which is Capaxone for multiple sclerosis. So we expect a generic second half next year. So really, they've got that threat coming in, which threatens their cash flow even further. So asset sales are at the top of the list in terms of priorities. On the generic side, there's not much they can do. It's more of a sector-wide pressure that we're seeing in the U.S., on price erosion, and that's not expected to let up until about 2019. Uh, is there a, a competitor that you believe, Liz, uh, will benefit the most from this uh, transition period at Teva? So that, that's a good question. I think, you know, most of the generic players are really all in the same boat. You know, a good peer would be someone like Mylon, and they've downgraded their guidance for the year, not expecting any new approvals until about mid-2018 as well. On the specialty side, there's really not anyone that would benefit from having a transition at Teva. There is, you know, a race in the migraine market where Teva is expected to come to market second behind Amgen and Novartis. That's expected to be a pretty big market. It could be a $7 billion opportunity in the U.S. So that's potentially a place where if they're not focused on that launch properly, a peer like Eli Lilly or a small biotech like Alder could take advantage of that. I want to thank you both very much for joining us. Uh, Kobe Ben-Melech is our Bloomberg reporter in Tel Aviv, and Liz Crudahalo, our specialty pharmaceuticals and biotech analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us uh, from London. There was a report that caught my eye over the weekend. China said that it was going to end sales of fossil fuel-powered vehicles in the upcoming years. Uh, China is just joining other nations, such as the UK and France, seeking to phase out vehicles using gasoline and diesel. Uh, My question is, how much does this shift the landscape profoundly for automakers worldwide? And here to answer that question, hopefully, is Jamie Butters, U.S. Autos reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from our Detroit bureau. So, Jamie, does this how how big of a deal is this uh, for U.S. car manufacturers? At this point, it's uh, it's not much of a deal at all, right? I mean, it's so far down the road uh, that it's hard to really see how serious the Chinese are with this. You know, and so I mean, look, I think the, the goals that there's that they're trying to achieve make perfect sense. They want cleaner air for their cities. They want to reduce their dependence on foreign oil. They want to be technology leaders in ways that are going to be meaningful in the 21st and 22nd centuries. Uh, but, you know, They've also I've been covering China and their auto industry for more than a decade, and they've you know had this policy to reduce the number of automakers that they have, and instead they they have more brands, more Chinese brands now than they did 15 years ago. Well, so you know, we'll I, see. There's not I, a date on it. We'll see if they actually put a date. On well, it. but Jamie, but uh, you know, aside from China's uh, declaration here, which you know you can sort of say it's sort of unclear. A lot of details have to be worked out. Just the fact that so many countries around the world are focusing on trying to reduce the number of fossil fuel vehicles and giving subsidies to electric vehicle production, to me, signals some kind of sea change that's going on in the industry. Do you do you think that that is overstating the issue? Well, there's definitely some politics for it. A lot of it comes down to the definitions, right? So we got a lot of us, we got really excited. Uh, it is very, kind of exciting, you know, Volvo and their electrification commitment. Uh, but 
you know, it sounds like electrification means they're going to be making electric vehicles. And they will make some. But the, most of the Volvos are probably still going to be hybrids, technically even mild hybrids. So more like a Toyota or more like the Honda Insight than a Prius. Um, so like really, you know, kind of what we would consider now like pretty primitive or mild hybrid systems. So a lot of that, what we saw out of London and Paris, they're more city-based, you know, than like the entire country or big, you know, the whole of the EU. And so something like a, a plug-in hybrid uh, with the right technology, some of them are kind of automatic. They run on electric until they run out of battery, and then the gas engine turns on to make the electric power run. You can have them, some like a Volvo's models, or, you know, they're more European-minded. You can switch them on and off. So you might drive in from the suburb uh, to your job in the city, and then when you cross the border, you flip it to all-electric mode, and you drive an electric while you're in the city where the pollution is the worst and the congestion is the worst. And then when you're coming back, you say, okay, do I have enough electric power to get me all the way home? Or do I just use the electric until I get out of the city and then, uh, you know, use the hybrid system? And so if you, to say no, uh, no, inter, no, no burning of gas, no burning of diesel, you're just moving it to, well, where's the electricity going to come from? And in China, I mean, like the U.S. electricity keeps getting cleaner and cleaner. We're using gas, natural gas. That's pretty efficient. Uh, you know, China, 73% coal. Um, they don't have the cleanest coal technology. And even the cleanest coal technology spits out a lot of carbon. So that's why I guess I'm not sure if they really mean this. When they're saying, you know, 20, later than 2040, it's not as meaningful as what we're seeing in London and Paris. And even from Volvo and even the Volvo stuff, I think, gets largely overblown. Jamie, uh, what effect does the scandal over diesel engines and pollution emissions have on the debate, particularly in Europe, uh, about uh, introducing electric vehicles? Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you hit right on it. That's why, I mean, there's two things driving it, right? You've got the political negatives about diesel, uh, you know, and it's not clear yet, you know, how widespread the cheating was at the minimum, right? We know that Volkswagen, the world's largest automaker, has admitted they sold 11 million vehicles with, you know, cheating software that polluted you know, many times more than the law allows. <laughs> so it's a big problem. But they still have to meet been... these envi they still have to meet these environmental uh, regulations. And I'll give you about 20 seconds. So what's next for them? So that's why electric. And the other thing is Tesla, right? That doesn't even make money. But because they make electric cars, their stock is valued hugely high. So there's a, there is a, some pull and some push, but it's very external. The economics are still a real challenge to make electric cars and make money on them in the kind of scale that we need for a China, let alone, you know, the U.S. and the whole world. Yeah, indeed. Well, well done. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, Jamie Butters uh, joining us as our U.S. autos reporter uh, talking about uh, China and its desire to get rid of fossil uh, fuel uh, automobiles. Perhaps. Yeah, right. Well, uh, you know how many electric vehicles General Motors has sold in China? 738. So there's a long way to go.
right now we're looking at a market that is trying to figure out the path forward. Yes, Irma wasn't as bad as many people expected, but Houston is still trying to dig out after uh, the hurricane that hit them. To give us more perspective on what we can expect for oil prices going forward, Regina Mayer joins us now. She's a global sector leader for energy and natural resources for KPMG based in Houston. And Regina, we talk so much about Florida over the past week, uh, but Houston still is digging out. And I would love to get your sense of just, you know, where we are in the disruption of uh, gas, in the disruption of uh, crude refining and, uh, and where we go forward with the price of oil. Excellent. Well, thank you for having me. Good morning. I think overall, Houston's energy business is proving to be incredibly resilient. The production facilities, by and large, are back online. Uh, many in Corpus and in Texas City, as well as in the Ship Channel in Houston, uh, are at full capacity. Some of the ones that were not at full capacity during the storm, it was in large part due to pipeline limitations and takeaway capabilities and less to do with damage that was sustained at the facility. The longer-term challenges will be in the Beaumont-Port Arthur area. My understanding is one or two of the refineries in those locations suffered more damage. But you're already seeing gasoline futures edge lower this morning uh, because the impact of Irma wasn't as bad as what traders initially thought it would be. Regina, the uh, change in the U.S. energy industry to one that is focused on exports with liquefied natural gas and reversal of pipeline systems, how has that changed, if at all, the uh, reaction and the effects, after effects of Hurricane Harvey on the, on the industry? I don't see that export strategy having had a big impact yet uh, as a result of Hurricane Harvey. Play this forward maybe five years when we have more of the LNG export facilities online and we have a much larger refined products export strategy as Mexico opens up and other, other parts of the world and a Category 4 or 5 storm hits the Texas-Louisiana Gulf Coast again, then I could see potentially there being global disruption in commodity prices because the U.S. footprint is so strong and growing. But for Harvey, we're not seeing any of those impacts yet. The export overall percentage is relatively negligible. And frankly, production wasn't offline long enough for it to have a material impact on supply. So, Regina, if there wasn't a material impact on supply, let's uh, switch to the demand side because there was a big debate about whether the destruction in demand with people holding up in uh, neighbors and friends' homes elsewhere outside of uh, Houston, whether that would offset any refining uh, decrease. And it seems like perhaps uh, that is the bigger story here, the destruction in demand. Do you think that that could contribute to lower prices? I do. And I, like I said, I think from just the market opening today and looking at gasoline futures, we're already seeing that. It, the millions of Houstonians sheltered in place. I, I personally was holed up in my home for six straight days with my children, and we did see a significant drop in demand. That helped offset some of the supply disruption. So while gasoline prices have gone up, I think at its peak it was maybe $0.35, $0.40 cents, um, up overall, you know, in terms of historic trends, maybe from a month or a year ago. I think we're back down to about $0.25 cents up on average, and we'll see that quickly iron itself out, I believe, and get back to prices that we saw pre-storm. Regina, just or- to- around that amount. Sorry. No, no. Uh, Regina, just to go off script a little bit, because we talk so much about Hurricane Irma, or at least the aftermath of it, it's currently uh, now uh, been downgraded to a tropical storm. But where is Houston in the process of rebuilding right now? It's, it's interesting. 
interesting to see what's happening in Houston. I mean, uh, relatively speaking, about 90% of Houstonians were not personally affected by the storm. But there is that small percentage who were devastated by it. So it's the, the communities coming together. Uh, so many people lost everything. And in the west side of town, you have homes that have been sitting under 6 to 10 feet of water for 10 to 14 days. That it, it creates absolute destruction, not just in the parts of the home that were submerged, but with the belongings that might have been on a, a second or a third story. So the focus has been on getting individuals settled, right, temporary housing, tearing out uh, the, the, the damaged parts of their homes, lots of Houstonians coming together. Um, some, a lot of folks will have to replace everything. But, you know, I think the city is going to have quite a few challenges relative to how they take this forward. Because this type of flooding can happen again with the unbridled development that the city of Houston is relatively known for. Can we continue to have that kind of response? Uh, and major roadways were, were underwater until, you know, just at the end of last week. So the city overall is kind of getting back to normal for the most part. But there are people that have been so substantially affected. And I do believe the city of Houston really has to have a um, a heart-to-heart with itself about how it continues to develop and manage its growth to prevent this kind of catastrophe from happening in the future. Are there any uh, sort of follow-ups to, let's say, the health effects of the flooding and the mixture of chemicals and energy pollutants that may in some way get into the the water system uh, and, and any way to contain all those uh, kinds of things? From what I understand and what I've seen in the city, there's not a strong concern about long-term contaminants. The, the water itself, it, it, is, it wasn't clean water, right? I mean, it's sewage, it's, it's runoff from all, all sorts of uh, roadways or industrial locations, et cetera. And, et cetera. and levees being uh, opened or indeed reservoirs Precisely. being opened? Precisely. And that, so that, oh, I'm trying to get rid of all of that water. Uh, that, it's going to have to be, homes are going to just have to be destroyed and and restarted, if they even do rebuild in some of those areas. Because, frankly, some of those homes should never be rebuilt, and it should become a floodplain against the bayou so that you don't see this kind of destruction in the future. Regina, do you think that uh, that the aftermath of this will also have an effect on Houston's uh, position in the energy market, that uh, there might be a focus on de-emphasizing Houston uh, in favor of the the, uh, more Midwestern uh, shale drilling areas? I really don't foresee that type of choice being made. I think Houston is a diverse economy already and has changed substantially from the oil booms and busts in the 80s that we saw. Uh, you know, you've got the Space Center, you've got the healthcare, care, um, you've got all kinds of financial services capabilities. It's not just an energy center, and it's incredibly international. I think it's second highest uh, concentration of Consulates uh, outside of New York, for example, very strong performing arts, very strong community-based um, activities. And so given all the other pieces, it's centrally located, it's got a great airport. I don't see people choosing to pull inland and go to uh, a Midland or a Permian type of a location. And I think the, the city's energy companies are demonstrating a huge commitment to their employees with their rebuilding, uh, many of the large companies are paying for temporary housing. They put contractor teams together to do remediation um, of individual homes. They're subsidizing 
their employees' ability to get back on their feet. And I think that's going to create loyalty and a long-term stickiness with the city of Houston. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Regina Mayer is the Global Sector Leader for Energy and Natural Resources for KPMG, uh, joining us from Houston and giving us an update on the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey that hit the area. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox with Lisa Abramowitz. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.